Amen. My name is Ben Holly, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Matthew chapter 7. So excited that you're here with us as we begin a new series. Uh, and you can see the name of the new series. We're going to talk about a very, I think, yeah, uh, certainly a very prevalent topic in our culture. It's everywhere this concept of judging. Me judging you, you judging me back, you judging me in the first place, and then me judging you back. There's a lot of cultural friction when it comes to our ability, our right, our need, our desire to look at somebody else and make a determination about them, about their goodness, about their rightness, about whether or not they're allowed. We judge each other all the time. I don't know that we always use that language, that word judge, and I don't know how often you've had to say, don't judge me. But I think the concept is happening all the time. Certainly, the, the friction is taking place all across our culture. And we say, don't judge me, and usually what we're meaning is something deeper than that, something more like, don't judge me because I'm going to judge you, and I've already judged you, and you don't deserve to judge me, you hypocrite. And it's like, I don't know, those shows where somebody's going to break up with somebody, and they start to say, listen, uh, you know, it's been really fun hanging out, but I, I, I don't know if this is going to, and they're about to say work out, and the other person goes, no, 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 I break up with you. I break up with you. You don't break up with me. I break up with you first. I'm the one who ended this relationship. We, we judge each other, maybe even race to judge against one another, and we have something that has been called a cancel culture. And I, I use that phrase as a borrowed term. I don't know a lot about it. I had to Google it because I hear it, and I knew that it was sort of similar to what it was that we were talking about from Matthew. And as I Googled it, one of the first things that came up was a BBC News article about an Australian rock musician named Nick Cave. And this guy, Nick Cave, gave a really, I think, perceptive kind of take on the way our culture is dealing with people and with people who have done things that we perceive to be wrong. And again, he's an Australian rock musician, so forgive me for reaching so high into ivory towers for my quotes, but it was on BBC News, uh, and yet, I think as I read it, you'll see it is, it's helpful. He says, as far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. It's opposite. Political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. Its once honorable attempt to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of the beauty. Moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn, bereft, even of the capacity for redemption. It's become quite literally bad religion run amok. Now, I think that's really perceptive, and I think it's very helpful. I tried to look up this man to see, like, well, maybe at least he's a famous musician. The only song that I could find from his that I had heard of before was from the soundtrack to the movie Dumb and Dumber. Now, I'm not saying that that bears on the wisdom of the quote, but take that for what it's worth. I do think that what he's doing is attempting to make some kind of a statement in a modern culture and feeling the pressure that all of us feel not to step over these increasingly prevalent, invisible lines. 
that there's now so many different groups of people to offend. There's now so many different ways in which to break the law or to invite other people's judgment on you. And, of course, his statement even here has, was quickly both supported and denounced by people. And where once upon a time you had the judgmental Christian stereotype, it's the idea that we would sit with our holy book and our Ten Commandments and use them like a bat to just batter people with. And you have it all over popular culture. You have it all over literature from the Scarlet Letter. This isn't literature now, but we're talking about uh, Saturday Night Live, Dana Carvey, the church lady. I don't know if you know that reference, but it's the idea that we would sit in judgment and wag our fingers at everybody around us. The word Puritan has even come to kind of mean that. Hypocritical, judgmental, holier than thou. But today, I don't even know. Maybe it's because the church has lost so much of its cultural sort of weight that now I don't know that we're considered who is the most judgmental. Because now, while there are many Christians who are very judgy, you have just as, or maybe even more so, judgmentalism in the Twitterverse. That as soon as you type something, or as soon as you say something, that all of a sudden you just get swamped and they get the wood to burn you alive. Is that, do we understand that to be God's righteous way for the world to work? Is that the way that we are supposed to be interacting? Or does the teaching that Christ has on judgment give us something that's not only different, but I think surprising? Because not only does he not sit like this self-righteous judge that we have from funny stuff like Dana Carvey to hard stuff like Scarlet Letter type stuff, but he says something that goes beyond the other side of it as well. He's not either non-judgmental in the sense that there is no right and wrong, nor is he so quick to just completely dominate these other people. I personally want some help here because I hate being in a world where I'm supposed to hate so many different people. Now, I don't get that from the church, but just being an American Dude, just living in our world, I feel that pull all the time. People are saying all the time about how absolutely awful these people are and how absolutely awful these people are. And I'm just tired of hating other people. It's lonely at the top. When you're this righteous judge and you look down on everybody else around you, all of a sudden you find that there's nobody left to be with you. Heavy lies the crown is a saying from Shakespeare. But it's the idea that, that it's hard to be that final ruler over everybody. I don't think we're built to be it, but I do think that we often act as that ruler overall, the person who has the weight of the responsibility of deciding that every single person that you meet and every issue that you might come in contact with is something that you need to have enough information about to be able to all the way decide this is exactly what's right and wrong about it, and I have spoken. Jesus says, don't judge. And when he says it, because he's God, he gives it the weight of a command, just like the Ten Commandments. Now, if we judge, we might take it lightly, but if we judge, 
We are disobeying God himself. So what does that mean and what do we do with it? Matthew chapter 7, let's read together. Here in verse 1, Jesus is, this is Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus' teaching for his people. He's got his disciples. He sat everybody down and he's, he's given them his wisdom. And he speaks towards the end of this sermon about judgment. He says in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it's going to be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye. Well, there's a log in your eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what are we talking about? As he's talking about judgment, he's saying specifically that idea that you look at somebody else and you say about that person, this person is good or bad because of what? This person is right or this person is wrong because of what? And it goes further because really God has given us all kinds of laws, and we're going to talk about what it is for him to be the judge the problem is when we put ourselves in that place and say, you are right or you are wrong based on these categories that I will give. You are just or you are unjust because of these categories that I have decided. And here's some of the problems with that idea that you are the judge. You are a terrible judge. Why do I say that? Look at what Jesus says. Problem number one, we are terribly inconsistent judges. It says, verses 3 through 5, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that's in your own eye? Why does he say that? Because the way we judge others is not the way that we judge ourselves. We're terribly inconsistent. We can see even specks in other people, very small little picadillos, very small inconsistencies or... or um, uh, where you're just not very polite. I don't know. Whatever. Just these really small little infractions. And we don't notice in ourselves these two-by-fours that are hanging out of our own eyes. Why? Because we are very quick to adopt many different systems, one for us, one for other people that we like, one for people that we hate. It leads to madness. There's this really great book called Crossroads by this guy named um, Pete Kuyper. It's just a biblical counseling book. He walks through lots of different lies that we believe, things that we've kind of told ourselves that we kind of think are true, but the Bible says, no, I'm going to challenge that. And if we'll allow Bible truth to impact these lies that we have, we're going to live in a ton of freedom. And one of the ways that he's thinking about this is with judgment and forgiveness. And he talks about the madness of everybody judging by their own standards. And he imagines it by saying, how could several, you say maybe five carpenters build a house if they all left measuring tape and they all left their plums and they all left their levels in their toolboxes and said, I will decide what is a foot. I will decide what is level. I will decide what is plumb. And they all start working together, but with their own standards. What would they have? They wouldn't have a house They'd have a heap of different things that they had kind of jammed into one another, but it wouldn't actually form anything helpful. 
God says instead, 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So this is Apostle Paul, and he's talking about what it was to be a church planter and to go around and, and communicate the gospel to these different groups for the first time. And he's saying he's laying this foundation like a skilled master builder, meaning that this foundation that he's got, and he'll tell us what the foundation is in just a moment, needed to be put out so that people could see what it is that we're talking about, what all these things that we're thinking about are based on. And now somebody else is building on it. He, he laid this foundation, and now there's got other people coming and teaching. But let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying that we need a standard. We need truth that's discovered, that's given, not that's invented. You and I are always tempted to come up with our own idea, our own understanding of what we think is true or what we think is right or should be right. The problem is that we're really bad at that. And in fact, God's already spoken. He's already given that wisdom and that truth, that idea of what is right and what is wrong, that, that foundation upon which we should be building everything else. No, if you take away God's truth, if you take away truth that's discovered, that's given by him, and you instead go to invented truth, we tend to invent that truth along a couple of different lines. One of them is comparison, meaning whatever I have is the right amount. Whatever you have is either way too much or way too little. So I see somebody who's dumber than me, and I think, oh, what a dumb dumb. That's the dumbest guy in the world. And I see somebody who's smarter than me, and I say, oh, what a nerd. Now, why would he be a nerd? Simply because he's smarter than me. I see somebody who's meaner than me, and I think, oh, what a horrible bully. Nothing is too bad for that person. They're awful. And then I see somebody nicer than me, and I assume, well, they're probably hiding something. I think they're probably compensating for something. They're only that nice because they feel guilty about something. That Pharisee. I see somebody who's poorer than me, and I tell myself that if they would work harder, they could have what I have. Because that means that I have what I have because I'm so impressive. And I look at somebody who has more money than me, and I say, oh, how materialistic. They really should care more about the things that really matter in the world. Or they were probably born with it or something. I don't know. They, they are definitely wrong, and they are definitely wrong, and what I am is right. And fill in the blank on whatever category you want to put it in. Comparison tends to be the thing that we use to decide for other people. And that makes us terrible, inconsistent judges. It's maddening. If it's not comparison, it will also come back to family of origin. You have been given, because you were raised by a group of people, you have been given a set of beliefs about what normal is. And that set of beliefs is going to impact your life and the way that you see other people as either conforming and being normal or not and being abnormal. We see this all the time in marriages. We talk about it a lot in premarital counseling. Why? Because you have these two different families of origin that are going to get mixed together with these two people. And maybe her family is very fun-loving but a little scattered. And maybe his family is really disciplined and a little dull. And they get married, 
And he only receives love from her when she is disciplined. And she goes to bed at 10, and they wake up early, and they get their day started. But she only receives love from him when he's spur of the moment and fun. And they stay up all night on a Netflix binge and sleep in and miss work a little bit. How does that work? Both are judging based on standards that are just given by their family of origin, not given by God. So that those standards cause all of this friction and nobody's really right. Now, take that and extrapolate. Pull it up. Make it more broad and look at the way that it impacts the whole of society. You and I are part of a culture. And we import the rights and wrongs of that culture into the rights and wrongs of all these other cultures. And what's really right? We're just comparing apples to oranges. I'm just taking what I think is right because it's what's normal to me. And I'm trying to import. I'm trying to lay it on top of you. I'm trying to create this yoke that's going to bar you from what your culture says is most helpful, most fun, most interesting. Friction, friction, friction. And what's really right? No, truth is not invented. It's discovered. God's already written it, and we go to him and we find it. So, he becomes the judge, and I become free. Heavy lies the crown. It's hard for me to be king of the world, telling everybody who's right and who's wrong. I take that crown off, and I put it back where it goes on him, and then I become free. Free how? Free to forgive. Now, we're going to get into some hard stuff here because I know that for some of you, the concept of forgiveness is not about something small. It's about some kind of hurt that somebody else has done to you that's great. So it's not a light thing, and it's not an easy topic to talk about forgiveness, but it's impossible not to think about forgiveness when we talk about being judgmental because when we judge other people, we set ourselves up as detectives, prosecuting attorneys, juries, judges, and executioners of these people that have offended us. Now, there's no way we're going to be objective. It doesn't make us wrong. But there's no way we're going to be objective. And we have all of the weight of being the ones who are going to bring about justice to that individual. Justice in this world happens very seldomly. But it won't always be that way. The Christian is able to forgive because what you do is you take the offense against you and you bump it up and you put it into the jurisdiction of a higher court. God doesn't say just forgive everybody and everything's going to go away and whatever anybody has done is just not going to be a big deal. It says in Hebrews, for we know God who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now, he's done quoting, and this is just the writer of that book looking at you and saying, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
that should make you tremble. And it should make you able to forgive. When I forgive somebody, what I'm not doing is saying, what you did is fine. What I'm doing is saying, it's not on me to judge you. God will. It's on me now just to forgive and to love. And that sounds a little bit like crazy, but this is implications from Jesus' teaching. So you go through the book of Matthew. You've got this Sermon on the Mount early on, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But as you continue and learn about Jesus and his ministry and his teaching and what he's doing, he comes to this point in Matthew 18 where he tells the people about how they're supposed to administer the church. Because there's, pro- there's this possibility that people who are part of the church will start sinning. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, it happens. And eventually, they're going to get kind of flagrant with it, and you're going to have to confront them and say, hey, listen, buddy, what you're doing is against God's law. And if they repent, oh, well and good, you bring them back. But if they don't, you have to come to them again and again with more and more people and say, please, see God's standard and agree to it. And then after this heavy conversation about church discipline, Jesus then has this conversation with Peter. And it seems kind of out of nowhere because he's been talking about all this other stuff. And then now we have Peter coming up and making this big proclamation to Jesus. Peter comes up and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And you can see Peter that he is pronouncing this grand number. Because my gosh, if somebody did the same thing to you seven times, you're going to forgive them? Maybe if they space it out over a period of years, but if it's just one right after another and you're really seriously seven times you're going to forgive, that is a pretty impressive number. And Jesus responds, I don't say to you seven, but 77 times. 70 times seven. It's kind of hard to know because in the Greek they can just mix up the words in whatever order they want. What he's saying, though, is a million times. How many times are you going to do it? That's how many times you forgive. Why? He starts to tell a story. He tells about a king who has a servant, and the servant owes the king $200 million. Now, I just made that number up. It's a number in the Scripture, but that number isn't dollars, and so you have to throw something out. Just an unimaginably large number, let's say $200 million. And the, the servant falls before the king and says, obviously, I can never pay that back. But if you'll just give me more time, which is hilarious, that's such a good sentence. Like, okay, because you're about to somehow find $200 million. Just a little more time. And the king, seeing through all of it, has mercy and says, you know what? I'll just take the loss. The debt is forgiven. Go. And the servant, rejoicing, leaves and finds a servant who owes him money. Owes him like $10,000. Now, $10,000 is not nothing. I don't care how well you're doing. You would notice if you missed $10,000. $10,000, I think, is a lot of money. But it's not $200 million. And yet, when that servant falls on for his, his friend and says, Oh my gosh, I know it's $10,000. <laughs> it's a lot of money, but if you'll just give me more time, I'll pay it back. The forgiven servant grabs him, shakes him, 
and says, you pay me my money. I can't. All right, well then, to jail with you. And they send him off to debtor's prison until the last penny should be paid. Now that hypocrisy and that injustice was reported back to the king. The king called the forgiven servant before him and said, did I not forgive you this massive amount and you won't forgive this small amount? You wicked servant, unforgiven. That weight, that debt is back. You go to the debtor's prison with the guy you sent to the debtor's prison. Bum, bum, bum. And you say, crazy story. I say, Matthew 7, 2, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use it, it's going to be measured to you. It does not mean if you don't forgive people that you're going to somehow lose your salvation. It does mean if you've actually been saved by Jesus, meaning that the debt that you have before the holy judge, the debt that he considers to be unimaginably large, if that debt has been forgiven you because he just in his kindness said, I'll pay the debt, then you look at somebody sinning against you and you can't also forgive trusting that God is their judge here's my question do you really then even know God's forgiveness have you ever really met that king listen I know this isn't easy make the number whatever you want it to be Maybe it's not 10,000. Maybe it's 100,000. Maybe it's 200 million. But whatever they've done to you, what you and I have done before God was so bad that Jesus had to die to forgive it. Now, say what you want about your understanding of your debt before God. From his perspective, the only thing that would pay that debt was the death of Jesus Christ or your own death. And yet, because he loves you, he has made a way. Jesus did die that death, and you can be forgiven with that same forgiveness. If you're somebody who's seeking, you're trying to understand Christianity, that's the whole thing. That's what we call the gospel. That's what motivates all of our service. That's what's exciting for us. That's what makes all of our love and our our daily kind of hope. That's the reason that we're excited to see Jesus again one day. That's it. If that's appealing to you, let's talk more. But if you are already a Christian and you have already said, that's me and I've been forgiven by that. He is my beloved. I am his and he is mine. Then let me ask you, are you withholding forgiveness from someone? Are you looking out over the world and saying, I'm better than him, I'm better than her, I'm better than him, better than her? Are you judging those God is the only one equipped to judge? Or are you living a life of forgiveness, joy, and love. We can say so much more about this, and we will. This sermon series, we're going to tackle all kinds of different stuff. We're going to talk about the way that we judge others today. We're going to talk about the way that we judge ourselves, the way that that judgmentalism 
impacts, breaks down, dominates, destroys our own understanding of who we are and who God says that we are. Then we're going to talk more about God's judgment, namely hell. Yay. Come back. I think you'll be interested in what it is we talk about. And then we're going to talk about some of the ways in which we avoid that judgment. We're going to talk about the world, the flesh, and the enemy. So stay with us. Come back. Enjoy some of this heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. But my prayer is not that you'll see heavy, but that you'll see the light that God shines in the midst of this darkness. Let's take a second now and just close our eyes and pray. And I would, I'd like to ask you to think about a couple of things right now. I'd like to ask you to think about whether or not you've been forgiven like that. What has Christ forgiven you? Take a moment not to think about what they've done to you and think about what he's forgiven you of. I want you to think about it, not so that you can weep, but so that you will see the love that he has for you and the forgiveness that he's given you. And that that very love, that very forgiveness will motivate in you the ability to hand back to God his crown. He's the only one with the shoulders to bear it. Hand back to God his crown. And let us begin to be that forgiving, loving people. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make this stuff deep and real, that you would just carve our hearts up with your love and your forgiveness so that the kind of joy that we feel and the kind of forgiveness that we feel is the kind that we're willing to give and able to give to others. Make us the people who are able to really get in there and solve our world's problem with this judgmentalism that has no prospect of redemption or this total free-for-all that has no possibility of right and wrong. Father, bring your gospel and heal our world. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.